Amen. Good morning, church. My name is Justin, one of the elders and pastors here at Peninsula Grace, and my voice is a little hoarse. I would like to say uh, that it's because I've just been praising Jesus all morning. I think it might have something to do with me yelling at the TV screen yesterday as the Baltimore Orioles dropped the first game in the playoffs, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, glad you're here with us. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, continuing our study through uh, this Gospel. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 2 as we get ready to dive in, but have an important announcement to make before that. Uh, we have ants and spiders. They're not here. Some of you are already looking under your seats, right? A really good custodian. She's worth her waiting. But we, um, at my house, right? And so Jill and I, we, um, we have found both spiders and ants crawling around the home. And in probably the most cliched aspect of our marriage, when Jill sees one of these spiders, she's, she goes, ah! And I go, aha! And here comes her very own Spider-Man. And I know he's with the spiders, but whatever. So I use my spidey senses, and I I crush those spiders with my spidey tissue paper, and we fly off with me and Mary Jill in my arms. Um, And she just says, my super pastor, right? She loves me so much. Now, I I can squash those ants and spiders all day long, right? But what's the, the bigger question? The bigger issue is where are they coming from? We need to get to the root of the problem. Otherwise, I'm just going to be stomping on symptomatic uh, spiders and ants forever. If I don't find that spider or ant clubhouse where they're all yucking it up and playing shuffleboard, right? Did you see her scream? She's shimming up him like a tree, right? Uh, then I'll never be able to reach my ultimate goal, total annihilation of these two species from my domicile. Um, and as humans, we experience problematic ants and, and spiders crawling around in our hearts all the time. Uh, anxiety over finances, um, lust over something outside of the boundaries for us, depression or anger based on the recent election results, um, addiction, gossip about that annoying coworker, uh, jealousy over the, somebody else's family situation. Uh, but if if cleaning house uh, means just trying to stomp on that anxiety spider or squish the, the, the lust ant or whatever, we're not going to get to the root of the real problem and therefore be able to find the real solution. And in our story here in John this morning, I see Jesus getting to the heart of the real problem and offering the real and only solution for us. So um, the first thing we're going to look at here in John 2 is is why Jesus came. Look with me in verse 13. I'm going to have the Christian Standard Bible in front of me that I'm reading off of. So verse 13, the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Now, Passover was one of the three annual festivals or celebrations that at least each Israelite male was required to go to, and then often they would take the family with them. And no matter where you lived, in country or out, you were to come to Jerusalem and worship at the temple here. Now, in the other three Gospels, um, we see a similar story taking place, but it's at the end of Uh, Jesus' three-year ministry, during that last, we call it Passion Week, like in the same week that he dies on the cross. This one happens here at the beginning of his ministry. So which one, when did it actually take place? 
Uh, well, some think that John may have rearranged the story uh, to fit his narrative purposes, and that's possible. That happens from time to time with the authors uh, of the Bible. But most believe this is a second a cleansing, well, the first of two uh, cleansings. Uh, they're similar to the one to come, but there are some differences in it. We don't know for sure, and, and that's okay, right? We can live in that, in that tension. But verse 14 says, in the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found money changers sitting there. So this is what Jesus encounters when he gets into the temple. First of all, he sees people selling oxen and sheep and, and doves. Now, remember, you're traveling from all over. And so it would have been a lot more convenient to purchase an oxen on site than BYOO, right? That's a long way to travel already, let alone strapping some farm animals on your back. So we, we see here, and originally, um, the, these merchants would set up shop across the Kidron Valley, but they've gotten a little bolder, and now they're actually just they're setting up their tents right here in the courts of, of the temple, now, they also talk about money changers. Uh, again, as people are coming from different places of the empire, um, they, they had different coinage. And so each year, um, every Jewish male over the age of 20 was required uh, to bring a temple tax to, to, to the temple when they would come to celebrate, right? To help upkeep the temple. This thing ain't going to sacrifice itself, right? So they needed everybody to work together to make this happen. And they had to bring a half shekel. So they say, how do you break a shekel, right? That seems problematic. So usually there'd be two families that would come together and present one, one shekel. Now, if you didn't have the right type of currency, because most of the currency at the time, a, a drachma or a denarii, they had the Caesar's imprint on them. And so the Jewish people felt like that was impure. So you had to have this Tyrian coinage, the shekel that was brought. But to do that, you needed to convert your coins. So there were these exchange tents that would pop up all over at these high festivals, right? They knew a client when they smelled them, sort of like at our Wednesday markets, right? Uh, so you have tents everywhere, and Jesus, now he goes Chuck Norris mode on us. Verse 15, after making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen, and he also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. But what is going on here? Often these uh, animal salesmen would gouge the customers, right? It's a convenience issue. And the money changers would charge them interest for, or an exchange rate, if you will. Uh, and, and you were sort of at their mercy. It's like when you're at an amusement park and it's 95 degrees and it's hum humid and you see the, the water bottle vending machine and it's $13 a bottle. They got you. You know, you're, or you're at the movie theater and you want a tub of popcorn. It's yours, but you're going re re to, uh, to, to refinance your, your mortgage, right? And so that's why many of you smuggle food in, and this is a chance just to repent of that. I will <laughs> leave that space for the Spirit's work. Um, the idea here that would be, well, Jesus is against their greed, and, and that'll preach, right? Jesus speaks to greed quite a bit, but most scholars agree there's a deeper thing going on here, and the problem seems to be that the fact that they are here at all. Now, this would have been the court of the Gentiles, this big space out there that you see on the temple um, uh, shot up on the screen there. Now, God had designated this place out in the major courtyard for, um, as, a, as the appropriate place for people from all nations to come and, and to worship him and to pray to him. But these merchants are disrupting the worship. So there's tents everywhere, where sales going on. Um, and as they're trying to pray, you hear a merchant in your ear, two for one special on oxen, and this is a deal you can't pass over. 
That's pretty good. That's... God's heart was and is for worshipers from all nations to come to him. Isaiah 56 it talks about this. This is the day that was coming. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and don't desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and it will fill them with joy in my house of prayer, right where they are in this moment. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifice because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So they are called, now, now there are certain places that only the Jewish people at this time could go into, but out here, this was for all nations. And what's Israel doing here? They are inhibiting the nations. Instead of being a light to the nations, they're hiding it under a bushel, right? And Jesus is uh, he's fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 14, when uh, in Zechariah it says, and on that day there will no longer be traitors in the temple of the Lord. And we see here Jesus, this was a messianic reference that when he came, the Messiah came to bring the kingdom, he would clean God's house. Jesus goes on to say in verse 17, uh, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples uh, hear this and they know their Old Testaments. And this is from Psalm 69 where King David, he says the exact same thing. Zeal for your house, it consumes me. And they hear that and they go, we've heard that before. And we've heard that before in our Psalms. And remember King David, a man after God's own heart, his greatest desire was to build God a house, right? To build him his, his place of worship. And when we see, and if you read Psalm 69 in its context, David is receiving a lot of pushback, a lot of persecution uh, for uh, his worship of God and his zeal for his God's worship. And David's saying, all I want is to see you, God, worshiped rightly. And zeal for God's house attracted opposition for David, and we're going to see it attracts opposition for Jesus as well. But this points us to why Jesus came in the first place, and that's to clean what was dirty. To clean what was dirty. Jesus' zeal wasn't just for this temple building, right, that he just really wanted a clean uh, temple. It was for his father. His zeal was for his father and the right worship of his father. And so when Jesus is driving out oxen and sheep and shekels, the real point, the, the, the source of their problem that needed cleansing was actually their impure hearts and the lack of right worship of their God. See, every single ant or spider in our hearts is ultimately sourced in, in not worshiping God rightly. And you might say, no, I, I worship God, right? I, I've never worshipped Baal or Allah. I don't even watch American Idol, right? I'm just playing it safe. Malachi chapter 3 talks about this. He says, uh, he, the Messiah, will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross, so purifying, right? He will purify the Levites, they're the ones leading the people in worship of God, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. So they were not offering sacrifices that God was accepting. What's going on? It says, then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem, as he did in the past. So how is this Messiah going to purify their worship? When Jesus walks into the fa his father's house and he's, instead of hearing prayers to God and praise of God, he's hearing sheep salesmen and he's hearing clanging shekels, what, does the, what does pure and acceptable worship to God look like? Well, notice what Malachi says next in verse 5. At that time, I will put you on trial. 
I'm eager to witness against all sorcerers and adulterers and liars. I'll speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So what's the issue here? The issue isn't the the sacrifice. It's not like the lamb had a fifth leg and there was something wrong with the sacrifice. The problem is the heart of the sacrificer. And then they're not walking in the ways of God. Remember when, when Samuel calls out Saul, he says, what God wants from you, Samuel, or Saul, is not sacrifice, it's ultimately obedience. We'd honor him not just with our lips, but with our lives. And that's actually what the word worship means. To, to the old English of worship is worth shape. And so it means to value God, to see him as worthy. What are we just saying? Worthy, worthy, worthy are you. That we value God himself above everything, everyone else. And that value, the worth we place on God, will shape the way that we live. So if I truly loved God, if I worshipped him with all of my heart, if he's my central desire, if my, what, I, what I will is what he wills, and that means that's going to shape the way I live, that I will trust him and obey him. So you think about all those spiders and ants in our lives. Like, where does lust come from? Lust ultimately comes from not trusting God as sufficient provider. And if if I don't trust him to meet all my needs, then I'm going to run after things or people that are not mine and to to, to elevate them past what they are. What what, what about pride? Like Pride is saying, I don't value my God as the king of my life, that he is in control, and so I'm going to occupy that throne and try to control my life or the lives of the people around me. And, And map any of those, uh, greed, jealousy, anxiety, each of those are spiders that creep out from a wrong view and value of who our God is. And Jesus is trying to tell the Jewish people here, you're not worshiping my father with the right heart. And that's the problem. And that's what needs to be cleansed. And that's exactly why I came. So let me ask you this morning, what are some of the spiders that are creeping around in your heart? And how might, as, I'm, as we're hearing from God's word here, how might the Holy Spirit be connecting those spiders with an improper and impure uh, worship of your God? The other thing we see here is Jesus came to grant greater access to the Father for the people, to open the way, right? To tear the Holy of Holies and give access. The temple, le- the temple leaders here, though, are making it harder for the people to enter, through the, the merchants and, and, the sh- and, the, and the sheep and the, and the shekels, right? Jesus showed us that to love God, to have zeal for God, leads us to loving others, to have zeal that they would know and worship their God rightly as well. So the second question I would have us ask is, am I helping lead people into the throne room of grace, or am I actually putting up barriers, Am I a help or a hindrance? By the words that I say, by my attitude, by my actions, am I helping or am I hindering? Like you think about here as, as we gather on a Sunday morning, like am I concerned, what's my main concern as I come here? Um, you know, we want this place to be safe and secure and clean, right? We don't want literal spiders and ants running around. That's why we have a children's check-in to try to be as safe with your children as possible. We, have, we, we exercise wisdom principles, 
but I think oftentimes we just want a nice, neat environment where I can come and feel safe and secure and worship God, get something out of it, and go home along with my way. Am I more concerned about this just being a, a safe place, or do I want this to be a place where anybody can come and encounter their God? Now, here's the problem. If we open the doors to anybody, it's going to get messy and smelly in here, Right? Matt Chandler jokes, this should be a place where you have so many people coming in that you're kind of looking at your purse when you leave your chair. Is that thing going to get jacked or not, right? Like, are, are we going to welcome anybody in here? Who is the messy person that you're thinking of right now that if you're honest, you don't really want them in this room right now? Are we being a help or a hindrance to other people seeing and valuing their God rightly? And by the way, part of that mess and smell is me, and it's you, Right? But there's no hope for them. There's no hope for me. So let's put our extra tufts on and get messy and smelly with each other. This story shows us Jesus' zeal for right worship for his God. But how is he going to see that temple ultimately cleansed? Let's look at number two. How Jesus cleaned. Verse 18. The Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? So they ask for a sign. Now why do they want a sign from Jesus? Well, they want him to justify what he just did, right? Like, you're, you're acting like you've got some authority here and, and regulating what's going on in this temple. So they're asking for his license and registration, right? Do you have a permit for that whip, Jesus? Who do you think you are doing what you just did? And to be fair, as leaders of the temple, like, they have, they have the right to question Jesus and, and to, for him to do as bold of a thing as he just did. But the problem I see here with these leaders is there's no self-examination. There's no reflection in their own hearts about is this cleansing and are these charges actually just? Are they right? They were more concerned about making sure Jesus had the right credentials than using that to ask the question about pure worship and a right approach to God. And this reminds me in my life when we need to take all criticism before the Lord. Like even if your criticizer is a super jerk face, okay, haters are going to hate. But was there something in what they said that I need to hear, that I need to adjust or repent of? And sometimes there's not. Sometimes nothing needs to change in your heart. It might just be God teaching you how to be gracious and kind to super jerk faces, right? But you, he's got a lesson in there for us to learn. Verse 19 uh, says, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Jesus' res response to their demand for a sign is brilliant, right? Weird, the Son of God had the perfect response. But he is answering the demand for a miraculous sign. Because, man, anybody who could reconstruct this temple in three days probably has the authority to regulate his practices, right? And what are they going to call his bluff? Like, yeah, right, we'll start smashing it. He's not going to rebuild this in three days. What an idiot, right? Like, what's, what are they going to do? Verse 20, therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? So th this temple originally was built um, under Solomon's rule back in 950 B.C., so like a thousand years ago. But then remember the, when the Babylonians came and they carted uh, the Jewish people off into exile, they also tore down that first temple. Now, when, when the people were uh, sent back in, Zerubbabel and his friends, they rebuilt that temple in about 517 B.C. But remember, they looked at it and they go, man, this is nothing like the original. They actually, the people who saw the original were weeping over this inferior version. 
And so many years later, when King Herod takes the throne, Herod the Great, he says, I'm going to appease the Jewish citizens in my little kingdom. And so he enhances that second temple and tries to more restore it to its original glory. So they're saying here, Herod the Great built this thing in 46 years. You think you, Jesus, the ordinary, are going to rebuild it in three days? Now, he was a carpenter, right, or a stonemason or whatever it might be. But, of course, Jesus here is not talking about the physical structure. Look at what he says in verse, uh, verse 20, or excuse me, verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, this is obviously later, when, they, uh, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. So remember, God had told Israel to build him a house that he would uniquely dwell in uh, with his glory, and he would reveal himself to him. But we know that the Old Testament, that, that was a symbol pointing forward to a reality that was coming one day. And in our first chapter of this gospel, what did John say? No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself a, uh, God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him, that, Jesus, that God's very presence, his glory was revealed not in this physical temple in Jerusalem, but in a little baby in a manger who would grow up to be a man. I love John 14, this is a head scratcher. Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The Father dwells in me. The Father and his incarnate Son indwell each other. That Jesus came as the living temple. Here is God housed in a human body. And this was the fulfillment of all that the, tap, that the temple meant. That the, it was the touch point of true and right and pure worship on earth as it is in heaven. So when Jesus is driving out the merchants of the physical temple, it represented his true task. That the true and better temple, his own body, would house the ultimate sacrifice. And it would be destroyed. But it wouldn't stay destroyed, would it? No. Three days later, after its destruction, he would, as he says right here in verse 22, raise that body to life again. And here Jesus shows us how he's going to clean house. He's going to bring our deliverance through his own destruction. Jesus' house cleaning wouldn't ultimately come by employing the whip, but by receiving the whip that others, that you and I deserved. When he says zeal consumed him, not only does it mean that the passion for his father consumed him, but he sees that very zeal will lead to his consumption, his own destruction and death. How did it consume him? Well, remember, why are the Jews here celebrating in the first place? What did verse 13 say? This is the, the Passover. And we rewind the clock back to that original event that they're celebrating here every April or March. It was a reminder of God freeing his people from Egypt. The night specifically when the angel of the Lord passes over the houses that are covered in blood and sparing the death of their firstborns. And really this, this idea of Passover could, could also be translated cover over. That the Lord was covering his people and protecting them. And how did he do that? How did he protect them? Look at what it says in Exodus 20, uh, 12, 23. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the door, two doorposts, he will pass over the door or cover over 
the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. You hear what he just said? He's going to deliver them by placing himself between them and the wrath of the destroyer. God himself is protecting his people from his own wrath. And likewise, how did Jesus deliver his people and us? Think about a mother hen, like putting her wings over her chicks and receiving the blows so that they won't. He became the sacrificial lamb. He came to us to hover over us, to bear the wrath that you and I deserved so that our impure worship of God could be covered by his perfect worship of his father. That our deliverance was, seen, was given through his destruction. That our cleansing was achieved by his bloody sacrifice. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. And one of my concerns about this passage is I see it get, what I, I would say is misused and abused a lot. As I read Facebook comments with often involving Christians, um, you'll run across the angry ranter who uses this story as an excuse to blast another Christian, to blast another church, charges of false teaching, and, to, and, and use this story as an excuse for unnecessarily strong language, vitriol, and I've even seen it justified for physical violence. And people will say something along the lines of, well, I'm sorry if this comment about so-and-so doesn't sound nice. Jesus wasn't exactly nice when he was flipping tables. And he was confronting bad spirituality in his father's house. This is just me, wwjd And others, But you'll see other people on the comments say, well, yeah, but you're not Jesus, newsflash, right? You are not sinless. You don't have perfectly righteous anger and perfect judgment like him. So cool your Jesus jets, bro. Well, who's right here? Is there any table-flipping application for us today? I would say yes. I would say yes, we do need to flip tables like Jesus. But before you jump on Facebook and go, Pastor said I could blast you, (laughs) I think we're cleansing the wrong temple. 1 Corinthians says, don't you know your body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. We are now the temple of the living God. What an awesome, humbling privilege. And the place we need to start driving out impure worship is in our own temple's heart. We don't want to miss the, the point of the story like the Jewish leaders did. And as usual... I'm not Jesus in this story, right? I'm the Pharisee with a merchant-riddled heart of impure worship. Now, there is a place. Listen, there's a place to confront the sin in others. There's a place to confront false teaching. But, but even in those things, we do it as Jesus did and as the word of God says. Galatians 5, let there be no outbursts of anger. Let us not provoke one another Ephesians 4, the only thing that should come out of my lips is what is used to build others up, not tear others down. Colossians 4, our speech should be seasoned with salt. Not salty, but to be seasoned with salt and grace. Truth in love, to be self-controlled. And Jesus is in control here, right? This is not just a frothful uh, mouth of rage, right? So yeah, we flip tables, but we start in our own hearts. 
wherever impure worship of God still needs cleansed in me. And, and here's the deal. That it, it, Jesus said, look at this, the plank in your own eye before you deal with the speck. So yeah, eventually we might need to deal with somebody else's, help them deal with their speck. But if we first see the, the plank in our own temple heart, that's how we're going to come to them with the gentleness and kindness and humility that we're called to. This summer on, on my sabbatical, uh, Jill and I were able to sneak away uh, to uh, Lucy stayed with the grandparents for a night, and we went down to Yosemite National Park. Now, at the entrance, they have the coolest sign for national parks that I've ever seen. So we stopped, got out, got the picture. But imagine if we stopped there, took the picture, and then turned around and went home, right? And never went into the park itself. Uh, this was one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been to in my life. And we would have missed it. We, we would have missed it if we stopped at the sign. The sign was cool. But it wasn't the park itself, right? The whole function of the sign was to point to the park. And I would say it this way. Signs are not about themselves. They're what they, it's about what they point to. The sign is a means, not the end. Sign is necessary, right? If we didn't have signs saying this way to Yosemite, we would have been lost in the woods. We needed the signs, but ultimately the destination was where the sign pointed. And this is the lesson I think we find at the end of our story here. Look at verse 23. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So we see many, many signs that are being seen. So there were signs that Jesus is doing that aren't recorded here in John. He's going to talk about that again at the end. And there are people here, it says, believing in his name. But Jesus, who is God, knew their hearts well. And he saw that they were impressed by the signs, but they were missing the point of the signs. Now, we're not given a lot of detail right here in this passage. But as we see this gospel unfold, we'll think a lot of the implication here is that their conceptions of the Messiah were off base. And they're, they're looking for something that he is not. They're not letting the signs lead to the real Jesus and what he really came to do, which was to cleanse their own hearts and restore relationship with them and their father. So this, in the last principle here, we see uh, how uh, we come clean. Jesus came offering this cleansing, right? But how do we receive it? It's by believing, what we see here in this text, is by believing in the one to whom the signs point. Believing in the one to whom the signs point. We can't stop at the sign and miss the beauty of the park itself, right? Our faith needs to be in the person of Jesus, and the issue here for them wasn't whether or not their faith was genuine. It was the object of their faith. They were putting their faith in, in the signs, not the source, not the Savior. But here's the thing with faith. It is a process. It's a process. Verse 22, even the disciples here, it says it wasn't until he raised from the dead they go, oh, raised again. Got it. Right? It takes time. First few months of Lucy's life, she basically pooped and screamed for milk. That was her existence, right? Which, at as a two-month-old, super normal. Uh, but if she's 18, cap and gown, and still is just pooping and screaming for breast milk, there's some phone calls that need to be made, right? We got an issue. In Psalm 131, we're reading in the reading plan this, this week, and, and it, this came to my attention. He says in verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child. Lucy's going to have to learn how to trust and love Jill as her mom, not just the goods that her mom gives her. 
And this is how he lands the plane in verse 3. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. Not in what the Lord gives you, but in the Lord himself. And it's not just saying, Lord, would you stomp on my spiders? Would you get rid of the anxiety in my heart? Would you get rid of the lust, get rid of my financial problems, get rid of my relational dysfunction? Would you give me my milk? Lord, I need more money, I need more sunshine, I need more health, I need more fun, I need more control, whatever. Now listen, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about those things. But, But he knows that those are not the things that are at the root of our problem, and stomping those spiders doesn't bring about the ultimate solution. My greatest need is him and right worship of him is the best thing for me. That's what's going to get rid of the spiders. That's what's going to satisfy me. Not his milk, but him. And when I, when I learn to believe in the one to whom the signs point, I can, as Paul said, learn the secret of contentment. That in all things, regardless of the situation, I can say that I can endure I can make it through. Why? Because of Christ who gives me strength. And in, no matter what my circumstance is, I can learn to say, it's a process, it is well with my soul. This calm and quiet heart only comes from hoping in the Lord himself, not the good gifts, because he gives and he takes away, right? And if we put our hope in the gifts, I'm telling you, like we're, we're going to be disappointed Like a weaned child, we must learn to trust the source and not the sign. But take heart, brother and sister. Take heart, friend. It is a process that is achieved by his grace alone. He alone can cleanse our temples. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to cover, to bear my wrath, cover my shame. Lord, I just pray in response to who we see John declaring Jesus to be, that we would worship, that we would give Jesus all the worth and the value that he is due. Lord, we can't do that apart from the aid of your spirit working in our hearts. My prayer is that you would bring us back as we're going to sing to the heart of worship. Lord, it is indeed all about the person of Jesus as we come to, to value him supremely, as is his due, that we will find the rest of the spiders and ants begin to take care of themselves, stemming out from Christ and his finished work in us, Lord. Would you bring us back to the heart of worship? We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said.